So hopefully that doesn't give you an excuse to skip next week because you'll still be with me. Um, But I'm pretty excited about this morning. Um, Today, as you know, we have been going through the book of John, not uh, chronologically through the scriptures, but more thematically, trying to hit on highlights and themes and central ideas. And I don't think we mentioned it in the weeks past, but we're not taking this as an in-depth study in the book of John. Uh, Bob and I are trying to take an approach where we are simply tour guides. At best, we'll give you a fraction of a percent of what you will encounter in the book of John. We will by no means give you an in-depth look at everything that is in this book because it's simply too much. You can't go through it uh, in a semester class. I don't think you could go through it in an in-depth college class in a year. It's meant to be read over and over again over a lifetime. So... As we go into it, um, I just want you to keep that in mind as you're reading through it, as you're studying into it. And the main thing to focus on in the book of John, uh, if you want to hone in on one thing, is he tells you his definitive statement in his thesis at the end, which we're going to cover in just a second. Uh, But what I wanted to start with was to see if um, anybody had any experiences, revelations, insights, thoughts. Um, happy moments, uh, questions, concerns, anything that arose uh, from anyone who may have read it this week. And as Court pointed out, and my mother also mentioned, some of you may not be avid readers, which is okay. Um, God bless technology, because nowadays you can listen to it, um, you can watch it. There's lots of YouTube options out there where they'll actually narrate the story while there's pictures happening in the background, whether live action or some otherwise. So a plethora of options to choose from in media on how you can consume the book of John. So I'm going to put it out there for you. Anyone have any comments that they want to mention on anything that you've come across in the past week or weeks looking at this um, text? And that's okay if you don't. Uh, Hopefully as you keep going through, we're able to spark different things and highlights uh, that can hopefully catch your interest. And so going back to John's main thesis statement, John 20, verse 30 through 31. So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I would pose the question to you, how does John even know about this concept of the Christ? And if you remember from last week, we spoke that that word means couple different things. Anybody remember? Maybe Messiah is one of them, anointed one. Um, These are all connotations that are pulled from a certain section of your scriptures. Do you remember where those are at? How does he know about this? Did he just come up with it on his own? Did he make it up? Did him and a bunch of other guys get together and say, hey, we're going to start a new religion? Hopefully not. from the scriptures, right? And what does that refer to? Three main things come to mind. The Old Testament in its entirety, um, often referred to as the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew scriptures. And then you may come across this word that you've never seen before. I certainly didn't until about a year ago. um, And it's pronounced Tanakh. Um, And we're going to get into that here in just a moment. I want to read this quote to you, which I found quite uh, thought-provoking. I'm coming through this series looking at the scriptures. 
One of the most fundamental questions which has faced theology and the church in every age is whether or not Christianity also needs an Old Testament. Is the Old Testament to be thrown away as obsolete or preserved as a relic from days of yore or treasured as a classic and read by scholars or used occasionally as a change from the New Testament or kept in a box in case it should be needed someday? Or is the Old Testament an essential part of the Christian Bible with continuing validity alongside the New Testament? So I'm going to open that up to you, because I don't want to talk about my opinion. I want to hear what you have to say. Is the Old Testament worth your time? And can I ask you to maybe elaborate? Court says yes. I'm going to say why. All scriptures God breathed. So Quartz mentioning that Jesus probably wouldn't seen or John wouldn't have seen that the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't necessarily separate, but they're combined, and the scriptures as a whole are combined. Uh, James, I think I saw you. Yeah, so James's point is saying the New Testament often references back to the Old Testament. And if you got rid of the Old Testament, now you have this, you know, quandary of references that now have nowhere to go. And so, yeah, you have no basis for a lot of the claims of the apostles, of Jesus, of the foundations of Christianity. And so you need this Old Testament to help validate the New Testament. Um, and I would agree with So Tracy's comment is that the Old Testament is giving you more of a physical depiction of things that then get translated into the New Testament in more of a spiritual context. Tony. Without the Old Testament, you couldn't prove that Jesus lived a perfect life. Excellent, yeah. Um, So I want to move into this concept of the Tanakh. Has anyone ever heard this word? I got one hand. it's a, and Tony said this one. Uh, it's a shorthand reference to um, Jewish tradition on how they would have organized or canonized uh, the Old Testament. And unlike your Protestant Bibles, uh, it's all the same books for the most part. Um, you get into some caveats depending on different traditions of faith. But essentially, it's the same 39 books, but they're organized um, vastly differently. And, I'm, and I'd like to point out some of those. So in the first section, you have the Torah. Uh, which is the law, or the Torah. Um, That's going to cover the first five books in the Old Testament, very similar to the Protestant Bible. Um, And then you're going to start cabbing off to this thing called the prophets, and I always mispronounce this word. I believe it's Nevi'im, something along those lines. I don't have a good uh, Hebrew dialect, but you'll notice that these are not, um, some of these typically are called in the Protestant historic Bibles, that they're all lumped together in these prophets. And, it's, and you'll notice Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, typically referred to as history books um, in our tradition or in the Protestant tradition. However, they lump them in with the prophets. Um, and then obviously later you'll see the three main prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
and then they lump the uh, ladder prophets, the 12, there at the bottom. And then the last section you'll see is the Ketuvim, which is just called the writings. Uh, and some of the, the commentaries I read on this is, it was like they didn't know what else to call it, so they just kind of <laughs> lumped it together and called it the writings. Um, but here you have essentially everything else that didn't fall under the law or the prophets, which is going to be your Psalms, Proverbs, Job, um, all of the truth or wisdom literatures that you get in you know, Song of Solomon, Daniel, and so forth. Um, but I want you to keep this picture in your mind, because this is pivotal for, I think, the ideology and the concept that Jesus and the apostles and essentially the entire Jewish nation would have had as they awaited the Messiah. This, this was what they lived on. This was their law. This was what they put their hope in. And it's not insignificant how you view these. And one side comment, um, years ago, um, I reread through the Old Testament, and I did it in this order. And I guarantee you, if you do it in the order of these books, it's going gonna, it's gonna to jump out at you much differently um, than our Protestant uh, organization will have. Because the stories link together vastly differently, and you start seeing this overarching theme happening through the scriptures. So just something to keep in mind. And now I'm going to propose that John is essentially alluding to the Tanakh on every single page of his gospel. Every single word. And I want to know, has anyone else, have you noticed that, for those of you who have read it, experienced it, do you see over and over again these callbacks to the Old Testament, to their Tanakh? Has that stood out as obvious, or has that not seemed very very blatant to you? It seems quite obvious. I mean, think of all the stories that are happening. I just did my own count. I came up with 35 direct references to the Old Testament, And these are just my quick summaries of lumping them together. We're not going to go through all these, but I want you to look at the two ones that are highlighted and underlined. And for those of you online, I apologize, you can't see these slides. Um, But the two that we have that occur the most is Jesus mentioning, in his own words, referring back to the Tanakh. Um, And I broke those in two different categories because my line spacing ran out. Um, The first one is Jesus referencing essentially anything that was a prophecy, that was a direct quote, that was from the Psalms or Isaiah, And then the last one, talking about the Son of Man, are all the times that he references that, which immediately is to pull you back to Daniel 7 and the imagery that happens there. But of all the times John mentions it directly, Jesus by far references it the most of all the occurrences. And this is only the direct references. Um, We don't even have time today to talk about all the indirect references to the Old Testament. They are in every word on every page. Every story has layers upon layers uh, of meaning, of significance, of callbacks to their hope and this messianic promise that they were given. And so I want to propose to you, (laughs) was Jesus concerned about the entirety of the, the, the Tanakh? And I ask that question because oftentimes I think in our context, we think, well, Jesus only was concerned maybe about the prophetic scriptures, about the things that specifically talked about, things he would do, things that would happen to him, which I don't know how many that boils down to, but it's certainly, most wouldn't say it's the entire Old Testament. But my argument to you today would be, um, it certainly is his concern that the entire scriptures speak about him. John 5, 39 as he's speaking to the Jewish leaders, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And in those very scriptures, they testify about me. John five forty six. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. 
And anyone think of a reference where Moses mentions the name Jesus? It's a trick question, because there's not one. The whole point is that everything Moses wrote about, the underlying theme of everything, is Jesus. And I know this isn't John, but I like this one. Luke 24, 44 through 45. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Did you catch it? Do you see what he's referring to? How many things does Jesus mention in this phrase? You can count them. Who wants to take a try? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. For those of you not online, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. He's directly referring to the entire Old Testament canon that the Jewish tradition would have had. So Jesus isn't making a claim that there's a handful of scriptures that speak of him. He's making the claim that the entire Jewish tradition of faith speaks of him. I mean, it's a profound statement. Not only were they mad at him because he claimed equality with God, but now he's saying your entire basis of faith is written about me. It's quite the bold statement to make. Um, Granted, in Luke 24, he's not talking to the Jewish leaders. He's talking to these men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Um, But there's also uh, another context in there that he's trying to teach them these things. And he starts with the law of Moses, and he just opens their eyes to what's happening. Um, And it's a beautiful image, especially if you've ever struggled with reading the Old Testament, um, the things that Jesus is implying here. And John doesn't waste any time getting directly into the Tanakh. Um, He mentions it directly after his prologue, um, which may not be obvious, so let's cover that. John 1, 19 through 21. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, and this is what he confessed. I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Do you see it in that one? It's not as obvious. Um, So you have three references. Christ, Elijah, and the prophets. And generally, again, what does Christ mean? Messiah or the anointed one. Which when you go back to the writings, you have Psalms, you have Daniel, both referring to the Son of God, the Son of Man, this promised Messiah, the anointed one, all sorts of references. Elijah is going to point you back to the prophets because all along at the end of Malachi, he says, I'm going to send you Elijah. So they were looking for someone coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then the prophet reference is when you go to the end of the law, the end of the Torah, they say, we're still awaiting someone like Moses who just did all these wonderful things and then he died. And now we're still hoping for the prophet to come. And for those of you who have had time to go through John, you'll notice the people on several occasions will make that claim. Is this the prophet? Uh, The blind man who had his sight restored, what does he say to the leaders when they question him? Who do you think he is? Oh, he must be the prophet or a prophet. So they have these connotations in their mind. I mean, this, this is what they're steeped in. 
Uh, I think when Court and I were talking last week, I made the analogy that if you were to take the Gospel of John and put it in a sponge and you were to wring it out, everything that would come out would be the Old Testament. Pictured in this new light of Jesus, but solely based in the Old Testament scriptures. And so I ask you, so what? Um, Every time I approach a topic um, in the scriptures or in the Bible or something along the lines of Jesus, I can't help ask the question, why does this matter? Who cares? Why should we spend time in it? I'm going to ask you to go and think back again about Baker's quote. I'm going to pull it up one more time, so I want you to see it and think about it. Um, You know, is it irreverent? Is it something that we should put in a box and maybe pull out occasionally? Is it just something to break the monotony of the New Testament scriptures? Or is this something that should be run parallel with the New Testament hope, along with the, the Tanakh's hope in the Messiah? And are they, they, they to be taken simultaneously together for, for the Christian hope, for the post-resurrection believer's hope, not just ancient Judaism, but current today for all those who have believed in Jesus? So I'm going to propose that to you. Do you think it's possible to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name without knowing the Old Testament? I got one no. Yes, sir, James. So, James... So James is going to say, we're not claiming that you can't have the Old Testament because as you get rid of it, now you're breaking the continuation of God's word. Um, referring to Second Timothy where Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed um, and meant for edification, for uh, transformation, for teaching. I forget all the direct quotes, I apologize. But um, essentially you can't remove it. It's necessary and it's needed for um, a Christian's faith in how they walk. Um, and you will find not everyone believes that. We'll come across a lot of people who are just New Testament only. Yes, sir. That was Galatians three twenty four, the reference that without the old law we wouldn't understand who Jesus is. So it's a fundamental pillar to the Christian faith. Um, and so when you come across anyone who might say, "Well, I don't need the New Testament," right? Um, don't be uh, cruel love these people, um, help them to maybe see a bigger picture of who Jesus is. And James, you already ruined my reference. Second Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. And I'm going to pose another question to you. Which scripture is Paul referring to? And, and just, and I will say, there's a little caveat to this, Um, At the time, there would have been some of the New Testament letters, likely none of the Gospels, although don't quote me on that, um, but there would have been some New Testament scriptures. But fundamentally, what is Paul referring to? You can say it out loud, it's okay. Tanakh. The entire thing. 
So when you, when you, I know growing up, I mean, I don't know if anyone ever said it directly, but my context was always, oh, this is the New Testament, because that's where we spend most of our time, is reading the New Testament, trying to figure out how to be Christians. But that is not what Paul is telling Timothy. He's saying, you go back to our, our, our covenant, the book of the covenant, the law of Moses. This is where you get teaching, rebuke, correction, training for righteousness so that you will be equipped to be a Messiah follower. So you will be able to follow Christ. Correct. So Tony's point is that he's also referring to, uh, it would be whatever New Testament letters were around in those times, because Peter also refers back to Paul as being an inspired writer. So, yeah, again, don't, I guess don't misunderstand me. It is not solely the Tanakh, but it is heavily, <laughs> heavily based on it um, as a foundation for a Christian's faith moving into following Jesus. And so I want to, pr- sorry, yes, ma'am. So, excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Tracy's point is that, do you need to know the Old Testament to, to come to a realization of Jesus um, and be saved through his power? The answer is no, on day one. You do not have to be a scholar, a, um, a master of theology, and all things Old Testament to come to the truth and knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah and the promised hope of all humanity. Now, and this is a time for a different topic, but, or different classes, do you then progress past that point if you never do anything else? Likely, no. You'll likely become stagnant, um, and that's, we don't want to talk about that this morning, but um, you, can't, you can't grow, correct. You have to have the full um, context of Scripture, the full Word of God, to really get the depth and breadth and width of who God is, of who Jesus is, how the Spirit's trying to work in your life, and how it's trying to transform you into the image of Christ. And that, that, that initial knowledge can come, um, I mean, you look at some of the stories just in John. Uh, you look at the man who, whose eyesight was, was restored to him. In just one chapter, he goes from having a clue who Jesus is. He's blind the first time he meets him. And then at the end of the chapter, um, he's the only one in the book of John who does what? Anybody? Worships him. Nobody else in the book of John worships him except this man whose sight is restored. It's a beautiful image. He recognized him as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, in, what, 20 verses? Um, granted, he would have had a lot of context of the old scriptures, but nobody knew who Jesus was when he was, and nobody understood what this man was doing, because he wasn't, as we talked about last week, he wasn't the hope that they had in their minds. He was something much different and much better. So yes, you can come to Jesus day one, um, and then after that, I think he's calling you to love the things he loved, to have compassion and drive for what motivated him, and part of, you know, a huge aspect of his life was the Old Testament, was the Tanakh. Was where, I mean, you look in uh, the story when he was 12, what was he doing? He was studying, and he was learning, and he was amazing the teachers of the law at the time because he loved these texts.
Yeah. So Court's comment is that as you get into, um, especially Acts, and you get into some of the writings of Paul, um, he's quickly to point out that the early Messianic Jews were trying to make the Gentiles just like them. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to observe the feasts and the Passovers. And Paul's saying, no, you don't have to do that. There's a difference. Um, interestingly, though, he doesn't condemn either way. It's almost like he gives an avenue for, if you, this is how you want to honor the Lord, go do that. But don't put that burden on other people to have to do it as well. Um, so the early Gentile converts, again, yeah, they would have had no concept of most of this. Um, but Paul still established churches. He still appointed elders along the way. Um, so yes, again, the Tanakh is not a, I mean, you know, we're not getting into the legal, legalism aspect of you have to know these things. You have to meet all these requirements if you want to come to Jesus. The beautiful thing about Jesus is there are no requirements. Show up on day one, be naked, cold, hungry, and tired, and he's going to open the door and welcome you in. There is no prerequisite of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, which is the hope and beauty of why we get up each day. I mean, it's an amazing thing that our Savior does not demand something of us, but he freely gives to us over and over again. So thank you, Court, for that insight, and thank you for your comments. Um, and I just want to touch real quickly on um, what, can the, what is the power of the Old Testament? What is the power of this Tanakh? And I want to just, we're going to blow through these because, as usual, I have too much content and not enough time. Um, but four quick examples. When you go back and look at Exodus 19, uh, the children of Israel are at Mount Sinai. And you'll read this passage where God is telling Moses, I want you to relay this information to the people. I want you to give them my word and speak this to them. Moses goes and does it. And after he does, um, the response from the people is, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They are moved by the words of Yahweh. Joshua 8, 34 through 35, Joshua has just defeated the city of Ai. Um, they were victorious over them. And then he says um, in, in this reference, Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to everything that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. They actually wrote, it probably wouldn't have been, um, their law would have been different from what we see in the first five books of the Old Testament, but they wrote it on stone tablets and they set it up. They, they put emphasis on this and it was powerful to them and it motivated them. It was a reminder that you defeated this enemy today, not because of your ability, not because of your horses, or they probably didn't have any, but not because of your weapons, uh, but because of Yahweh. He was with you and as you keep and remember his word, he will continue to bless you on your journey. Second uh, Kings 23, 1 through 3. If you don't know Josiah, get to know Josiah. He's one of the greatest uh, people you'll come across in the Old Testament. And essentially what happens is they were cleaning out the temple and they found a copy of the law. They blew the dust off of it, I guess, because uh, they hadn't read it in a while. And Josiah breaks it out and he reads it and his heart is torn apart because his people have not been following this. And when you'll see in Second Kings 23, in those first three chapters, he says, he read in their presence all the words of the book of the covenant and, and all the people entered into the covenant. Their response to him was, yes, we will do this. We need to do this. This is important. Um, and one more. And then Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12, as Israel comes back from exile, 
at the dedication of the second temple, Ezra reads the entirety of the law of Moses in front of these people. And again, they must have had a somewhat shorter version because it says he started in the morning and finished around midday. I don't think you could get through it that fast now, but here's the response that the people had. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the raising of their hands. Then they kneeled down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Can you imagine if you took... I don't care what section it is. Take a portion of the scripture. Go down to downtown Anchorage. Stand in the middle of a courtyard and just start reading this thing. What would happen? I have no idea. But based on the examples that we have from the scripture, lives would be changed. People's hearts would be melted, going from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, as we're told. There's power in these words. And it's not the, it's not the ink on the page. It's the power behind the words. Where do the words come from? They come from the only God and Father who reigns in heaven, creator of heaven and earth. This is his plan. He's worked through people. He's worked through his words. His words create change. If you don't spend time with these words, then change doesn't occur. And most of this is going to be my own personal. um, I never liked the Old Testament when I was younger. I didn't understand it too confusing to understand seems to contradict itself it doesn't jive with modern science or technology it's written from an ancient unrelatable viewpoint it seems totally different from the New Testament God was obviously cruel and unjust back then it's outdated and doesn't apply to me all I really need is Jesus and I can't find him there I've experienced these I've heard these mentioned time and time again and I'm not going to I'm not going to rebuttal to those. I'm just going to simply say the God of the Old Testament is perfectly completely manifested in the person and the man of Jesus Christ. And then dwell on these. John 14:9. The one who has seen me, referring to Jesus, has seen the Father. John 10:30. I and the Father are one. Filter your mind through those fundamental truths of who Jesus is. He's claiming to be the God in Genesis 1. He's claiming to be the same God at the flood. He's claiming to be the God who brought Israel out of captivity. He's claiming to be the same God that sent Israel into the land to purge it of evil. He's claiming to be the same God that spoke to David, the same God that spoke to Elijah and Elisha and the prophets, the same God throughout the entire Tanakh. Jesus is saying, I am he. So you can't be a New Testament Christian because there is no such thing. What does John say in one one? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been. He didn't pop in in you know eighty four or BC three, whatever it is. He's been there since the time even began. So if you don't, if you if you hate the God of the Old Testament, then you don't know Jesus. And it's a careful balance. Because you're not necessarily, I think, supposed to read the Old Testament and only think, you know, how does this tell me of Jesus? But there's, there's other layers there. There's other meanings there. And it's you're meant to spend a lifetime going over these texts to see what is God trying to speak, not only to you, but to humanity as a whole. What is the point of all of this? And so I often find myself, was I blind? Did I not understand? Was I just confused and, and, and ignorant to what was happening in the Old Testament? And just looking at, I'm just going to pull up a few of what the Old Testament Tanakh authors 
said about the Tanakh. Psalms 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Deuteronomy 17.18-20, this isn't a direct quote, but essentially God tells Moses, when you go into the land and you have kings, they didn't have kings yet, he knew it was going to come, and he says, when you get a king, you have him actually handwrite the entire law. His own copy. Have the Levitical priest oversee him to make sure he does it appropriately, but I want the king to write out every word. I want him to know these things, because when he does that, he will live long in the land. The word of God gives life. Deuteronomy thirty fifteen through 16. Moses has just recapped the entire law to the Israelite nation. And it comes with blessing and it comes with curse. He's trying to encourage them. Heed the word of God. Follow it so that you can have life. You can have real life. And hopefully we're going to get into this later in the series. But life does not just mean the ability to exchange oxygen for carbon dioxide. Life is more meaningful and more rich when you understand the message and purpose of God. Proverbs 4, four, the second half of that verse. Keep my commandments and live. Have life in these words, not the ink on the page, the power and the source that comes from these. Deuteronomy 3b, man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quotes this in Matthew, man shall not live on bread alone, when he's refuting who? The, the, the father of lies, the evil one, trying to push him back. He uses the words and the power of God's own testament to push him away, because these words have power. They're not just things that you think about, but the things that you spend time with, the things that you focus on, the things that you meditate on. And I love this this verse from Deuteronomy 8 because I couldn't help but link what comes out of your mouth. Breath, words. Who is the word? John points this out. John 1, 1, it was Jesus. And what does Jesus give? Life. Again, there's all sorts of connotations to the Tanakh is pointing to Jesus because it is the only source of anything meaningful that gives life. And so I propose to you, do we need to maybe rethink how we view the Bible? Do you need to maybe adjust your own viewpoint on it? If you come across things or if there's whole sections, you're like, I just don't care about this. This is useless. This is nothing to me. I would ask that you pause. Take a moment. Spend time in prayer. God, what are you trying to reveal to your people? When you go to Psalms 1 and Joshua 1, both of these references are calling the reader to meditate. Um, Psalms 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Joshua 1-8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. And then just as a side note, Psalms 1 is the very first thing you read in the writing scroll. Joshua 1 is the very first thing you read in the prophet scroll. I mean, God doesn't waste any time starting out. What do you need to focus on? The law of God. And this word meditate, if you do um, a word study on it, it doesn't just mean like you sit in a quiet place, maybe have a cup of tea. Um, it actually, it's more um, analogous to the word whisper. They want you to whisper these words. Um, they want you to, to know them so in depth um, and so intimately that you can just recall them. They just come out of your mouth. And if you've ever read any devotional books on how to um, commune more with God, how to, how to grow in your faith, almost all of them will point out, spend time memorizing scripture. 
Um, and not just a few verses, but whole chunks of it. Um, and Psalms is a great place to start. You can memorize entire books because some of them are only a few verses. But when you can do that, and when you can recall it off the top of your head, you, it's, it's a shield to you. Um, David will talk about that. You know, you are a refuge and a shield to me. Why? Because when attacks come, I have the power of the word of God to fight those things off. That is what the Tanakh is trying to give you if you spend time in it. And if you, if you hone your energy in on it, it will bless you immensely. Um, and God will work in you. And, and Bob joked and laughed at me <laughs> when we talked about, he didn't laugh at me, uh, but we talked about this. One of the first times I read through John in its entirety um, earlier this spring, my first comment was, I feel like I'm supposed to know a whole lot more things that I didn't know. <laughs> because you can't help but read through John and you see all the instances of references back to the Tanakh. And not only that, but John even tries to hint at you, hey, there was a festival happening. And I'm like, what festival? What's that? And you go back and you look in, in, in the law and you'll, you can learn about it. And then you see all these instances of the Sabbath. And like, why are they so mad about the Sabbath? Isn't it just Saturday? Why can't you do stuff on Saturday? You know? But there's a whole connotation to that that you wouldn't know unless you go back and read these things. Um, and so part of my motivation um, when we started this series was to hopefully encourage everyone to read the book of John. I would like to go a big step forward and encourage you to read the entire Old Testament. Um, and even on top of that, read it in the order of the Tanakh. It'll take some time. You can't do it in half a day like uh, Nehemiah or Ezra did. Um, but it will abundantly bless you. It will confuse you immensely several times, and that's okay. Because you don't have to know it all at once. Uh, you probably will never know it all. But God appreciates, and he um, pours blessing upon those who what? Seek righteousness. Not accomplish righteousness. Not, not, not get to the end and pass with a 100% score. Take a step that way, um, and you'll be amazed on what he can do for you. And so I'd say, what's the takeaway from all of this? And here's just a brief summary of how I would explain uh, what the Hebrew Bible is. Um, It's fundamentally wisdom and meditation literature. It's designed to foster a lifetime practice of reading and pondering the meaning of these texts. And who is the main source of the text according to Jesus? Jesus. So if you've read through the Old Testament and you've never experienced Jesus in it, read it again. (laughs) Read it again and again. Find resources to help you. Find others to talk to. Find a way to get involved in these scriptures because they are speaking about the person who you are claiming is the Savior of the world. And if you aren't interested in finding out information about that, then you have to take a pause and think, what else am I not interested in? Reevaluate yourself so that you can be focused on what's important to you. Um, These scriptures are designed to strengthen our future hope in the promised anointed one who will herald the arrival of the day of the Lord and the fulfillment of the messianic kingdom. And I'm going to point out, I didn't pull up already, but um, there's things um, that you'll read in the Old Testament that kind of mess with you a little bit. That didn't work very well. Uh, Malachi 4 is one of my favorites. And read the first few. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and frolic like calves from the stall, and you will crush the wicked underfoot, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. And then in verse 4, he says again, hey, don't forget about the law of Moses. Just a little side. (laughs) 
But I say that to say, there are things you will come across in the Old Testament, if they were meant for our time here and now, it doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of hope for the future fulfillment of the Messianic kingdom, when all things will be made new. Um, think into Revelations, when the city of God comes down to earth, and, and we are allowed to live in the very presence of God himself. Well, there is no more sea, there's no need for the sun, because God is there, and we can be with him. We have a form of that today by Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, but it is not completely fulfilled. That day is yet to come. You will find these hopes in the Old Testament, and they will spur you on all the more to increase your faith and solidify your beliefs. Um, another, to, uh, The Hebrew Bible is designed to inspire a covenantal way of life that creates a counterculture way of being to the prevailing world system. You will find time and time again those who wrote the Old Testament were not the predominant people of their society. Um, I've heard the phrase, they wrote the minority report. They were the outcast. They were not the mainstream. Um, go look, read about Jeremiah. He was imprisoned more than once. Um, they, they, they were not held in high esteem because they kept condemning what the people were doing. They were calling them out for not following the law of Moses. Likewise, we're called to be the same way hopefully not imprisoned, but just like Paul says, may they all be like me except without these chains. We're meant to be counterculture to what the world is saying. Uh, whether that's p- protesting as some of the things you see on TV, I'm not entirely sure, but go out and give a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty. Feed those who are hungry. Clothe those who are naked. The Sermon on the Mount is how we show the world that we live in an upside-down society because we want to serve and follow Jesus. The Hebrew Bible also equips us for every righteous work so that we may be the anointed children of God in the time and place where we live. You are the culmination of heaven and earth when the Spirit lives in you. You are part of the holy body of Christ. Um, Spend time on that and your mind will explode. That you are part of this, I mean, Paul calls us, um, uh, we're we're part of the holy temple. We are the body of Christ. And so (laughs) you need to be that where you're at. There are people in your life that you can affect. There are things you can change. There are, there's activities you can get involved with that will further the cause and mission of Jesus through this understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. John is intentionally drawing abundant attention. Uh, sorry, John is intentionally drawing abundant attention to the Tanakh by both directly quoting it um, and through numerous layers upon layers of hidden meaning that only those devoted to the deep dive will find. And I, w- I refer to you. We didn't touch on that at all. Um, every story, every narrative, every part of John is just soaked in the Old Testament. Um, heavily in Isaiah, heavily in the Psalms, heavily referring back to David. Um, I mean, and we mentioned two weeks ago, John 1.1, he's, he's going all the way back to the beginning. He's trying to call, bring you into these understandings of, of creation and heaven and earth coming to be. There's so much in there. I don't even know where to start. We couldn't cover it in this class if we wanted to, um, but spend time in it. And one thing... Oh, Messianic, Messiah followers are called to cherish what Jesus did, including the entire word of God since the beginning. Um, don't think that the Old Testament or the Tanakh is not helpful to you. It is unbelievably helpful to you. Um, and if anything, I want to hope to spur you on to seek that. And I want to give you a resource. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, it's called Bible Project. It's a website that you can go to. 
Um, and here's their, one of their fundamental mission statements. From page one to the final word, we believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. This diverse collection of ancient books overflows with wisdom for our modern world as we let the biblical story speak for itself. We believe the message of Jesus will transform individuals and entire communities. And they have free classes. Um, they range, um, they're semi-seminary type. Um, they can be 15 hours long, but it's broken up into... I don't know, 30 videos or whatnot, and they have one exactly on this topic. It's called Intro to the Hebrew Bible, and their class overview says, have you ever wondered where the Bible came from? Go deeper into the origins of the Hebrew Bible and develop the skills necessary for reading it well. Take your Bible study to the next level by learning how these texts were formed into a unified collection. Introduction to the Hebrew Bible is the recommended first class for all classroom students. They have multiple classes on there. This is the first one I took. Um, I did it last year, and it was amazing. Um, it was incredibly helpful, insightful. Um, it is not uh, definitive in any way as to this is what you should think or this is what you're not. They just kind of paint a broad stroke of, have you ever considered? And it's beautiful to go through. And if you have the time, I would highly recommend it. Um, each video is about 30 minutes long or so, so it doesn't take much effort. Um, so if you can do that, by all means, please do. And we are out of time. So thank you. <laughs>